Welcome to the Rhythms Podcast for December 2018. In this episode, Rhythms editor Brian Wise talks to producer slash engineer Eddie Kramer about the re-release of Electric Ladyland by the Jimi Hendrix Experience. Originally released on October the 16th, 1968, the album is now available in a box set that contains three CDs plus one Blu-ray disc, with a documentary about the making of the album and a 5.1 surround sound remix. Eddie Kramer arrived in New York in April 1968, having worked with Hendrix in London and set about helping him to complete what was about to become a classic. Hi Eddie, how are you? Hello mate, how you doing? I'm good. Great to catch up with you. Congratulations on the deluxe edition of the re-release of Electric Ladyland. Thank you. It's a fantastic package. I noticed that the cover—it's an interesting cover—and apparently the cover is the one that he wanted in the first place. And you being involved in the whole thing, maybe you can tell us about that. Yeah, this was something that Jimmy really wanted. You know, he went into Central Park in New York City、uh, with Linda Eastman, who obviously later became、uh, Linda McCartney, and she was a wonderful photographer and a great human being. And、um, everybody wanted her to take pictures, you know. And she went to Central Park with Jimmy and took these lovely shots.、Uh, unfortunately, they, the record company, in its infinite wisdom,、uh, decided to do something else. And then. In the UK, the UK record company decided to do a naked Electric Lady Land cover, and Jimmy was so pissed off. He really hated that cover, and he got them to change it. And then, in the end, this cover that you see now never saw the light of day until now. It's a great package, and you know, and the cover puts a completely different light, and the liner notes and everything like that. And and there's a different mix, isn't there? You've you've remixed the sound for 5.1, which you get on the the Blu-ray that's included there. Yeah, I don't know if you've had a chance to have a listen to that, but it's、uh, it's quite something because this is what Jimmy would have wanted had he lived. I'm sure he would have. Dug right into 5.1 surround sound because in in the day when we were mixing, we got into these little bits where the sound started to travel behind your head just momentarily. And I looked at Jimmy, and Jimmy looked at me, and we started laughing. He said, "What's that? I don't know, mate. It was an accident. It was that we just decided to leave it in." But had he lived, I think he would have definitely wanted to hear the sound buzzing around your head, and which is what I recreated、uh, 50 years long.、Uh, went back into the vault. Got the eight, the twelve-track one-inch tapes, transferred them, and mixed it in 5.1 with a joystick. And it, I think if Jimmy had been with me, and that was my guiding light, was if Jimmy was sitting right there, he said, "Yeah, man, you know, just buzz that bloody guitar around the room like that." So, how does it enhance the sound in terms of what you hear? Because you can hear a lot of things that you didn't hear before. If you've got a good system to, li- you need a good system to listen to this on, of course, with the 5.1 sound. Yeah, you need a 5.1 a playback. But a lot of folks have it in the house. You know, if you've got a,、um, a nice system, you know, with the five、mm-hmm. speakers and the sub, it's it's fabulous.、Uh, you it puts you right in the middle of the sound, in the middle of the room. And Jimmy's dancing all around you, but it took a lot because you know we had to use the original tape as my sort of guide. I had to keep, keep switching between the two to make sure I was doing the right thing, because you know, 50 years ago, you don't remember what you did. 
You said in an interview earlier this year that modern technology has just managed to catch up with Jimi Hendrix. So an interview talking about this re-release, that modern technology has finally caught up with Jimi Hendrix. It certainly did. Um, this was our guiding light, you know. He was so far ahead of the curve in, in his songwriting and the creation of what he had in his head. What we did was interpret what he had in the studio. And he used the studio as a, as a, as a tool. It was a place where he would rehearse, write the songs. I mean, they were in his head already, but they were developed in the studio, which is why I spent so much bloody money in the studio. <laughs> Eddie, one of the things you forget, and I'm old enough to remember the original release of the album, but um, you tend to forget until you listen to it again how far ahead of its time it was. You're talking about technology but just how amazing this album was when it was released in 1968. Yeah, I mean, we were experimenting. I think the name of the game was, all right, let's try something that we haven't tried before. You know, there was very little that we had at our disposal. It's not like today, you know, with Pro Tools and all of that, and you've got hundreds of tracks. We only had 12 tracks. That was all we had. And, I mean, that was a big jump for us because we... We were recording in England in 1967 when I came to America in 68 and started working at the record plant in New York. Jimmy was, oh man, we went from four tracks to 12 tracks. We got eight more tracks for more guitars. I said, oh God, (laughs) that's going to be fun. But imagine the challenge of trying to get all of that information onto 12 tracks. You had to be really careful. You had to plan everything. And when we mixed it, it was Jimmy and I mixing together. Because we had, there was so much going on, you know, panning and, you know, phasing and all the EQs were changing, the reverse were changing, and it was a performance mix. It was four hands on deck, you know, Jimmy to the left and I was to the right, and we'd do a bit of a dance, you know, we'd figure it out as if it were actually a performance. And that's how, like, for instance, 1983, which is about, what, 14 minutes long? We rehearsed it about three or four times and then we just did it in one pass, no edits. Brilliant. You mentioned you moved to New York, I believe, uh, from uh, memory in the interview. You moved there. You arrived in on April the 17th, 1968, went into the studio the very next day. Did you go specifically to New York to work with Jimi Hendrix? Was that the reason why you went to the to the States? Yeah, I was invited uh, by the record plant, uh, Gary Calgren, who was one of the engineers there asked me to come over and continue working with Jimmy because Jimmy had moved to the States and that was, that was going to be my next move. You know, I came to continue working with Jimmy. We actually started on Electric Ladyland um, in December of 67 and in January of 68 in London at, at Olympic. I cut all along the watchtower with him there and Crosstown Traffic and a few other tracks. So we had already begun the process. Uh, I think Brian Jones played percussion on that session, didn't he? Mm, no, he didn't play percussion on that. 
that's that's a mis- that's a misnomer. He actually stumbled into the studio, and I heard this piano, this awful, out of time, out of tune piano, <laughs> all the wrong chords and everything. And it was Brian. He was out of his brain, you know. He was poor Brian. We 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 loved him, and it was one of Jimmy's good friends. Mm. I mean, Brian introduced Jimmy at uh, Monterey, yeah. and. Uh, Brian's in there trying to play the piano on this, and Jimmy's looking at me, and I'm up in the control, and, he says, and you could just see him. He's going, get him out of here. <laughs> so I went into the studio, and come on, Brian, come come up into the control room and hang out. So he did, and so have a seat in front of the board. So he did, and then about three minutes later, he's out, he's passed out, and then about, I don't know, within 10 or 15 minutes, we'd cut the actual master for along the watchtower. Let's just talk about the record plant. You worked at Olympic and then you moved to New York to continue working on, on the album. Now, what was the record plant like compared to the English studios that you've been working in? Because it was it was fairly big. You mentioned that it had a 12-track machine. What, what did it actually look like? Actually, Olympic, in comparison, was a huge studio. Olympic, you get about 75, 80 musicians in. But the record plan was, uh, the studio was smaller, but the control room was quite big. It was the amount of tracks on the tape machine that had increased, not so much the size of the room. But it was vastly different. <laughs> Just being in New York was such a, a, a mind warp for me, you know, coming from England, that this the whole cultural thing was so completely different. And the cool thing about the United States was they really appreciate, if you did a good job, you got paid well. <laughs> it was the opposite in England. <laughs> But the, the the thing with the record player, it was kind of a, oh, how should we put it? It was a little rough and ready, but it was cool. You know, it, it, it was not a sophisticated place by any stretch of the imagination, but it did have a really nice console to work with. And Jimmy was very happy there. He was back home on U.S. soil, you know, and he was, he loved New York. This was where he was discovered. Only two years before that, he was discovered and brought to England. And he was... Can you imagine? He was scuffling on the streets of New York just literally two years before that. The album's titled Electric Ladyland, and the studio you built with for Hendrix later was Electric Lady. Tell us about yeah, that Yeah, Electric title. Lady Studios, yeah. 52 West 8th Street. Yeah, we yeah. built that specifically for Jimmy. It was the first studio probably in the world that was desi- you know, designed for the artist with the artist in mind, and Jimmy loved that place. And and that was after, of course, the recording of Electric Ladyland, a little bit after that. Correct. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it got its name pretty much from what the album was. Electric Ladyland was, was an amazing piece of music because Jimmy conceived this as uh, a whole piece, you know what I mean? It all joins together and it all made sense together. Some of it may have seemed a bit rambling if you sort of separate it out, but it all fits beautifully. And, you know, the thing is, Jimmy, in the beginning, was working with Chaz Chandler, who was the original producer, but they had a bit of a falling out because Jimmy used to bring in, you know, 10 or 15 people into the control room, all hanging out, smoking and drinking, and Chaz wasn't having any of that.
an amazing piece of music, the original album, but you've put together an album of outtakes and, well, actually stuff that, uh, demos that uh, that Jimmy recorded. And I believe that, that he used to carry, I don't know, I think he recorded, I read that he recorded these on a TIAC. I, I presume it was a reel-to-reel. I believe he, he carried a reel-to-reel around with him wherever he went because he made so many recordings over the over the over his brief career. Well, definitely... He had the tape machine in the um, suite that he was living in at the Drake Hotel during the time of the recording. Um, And these demos are fantastic because Jimmy's singing really quietly and he's playing acoustic guitar, which he didn't often do. And there are very, very few recordings of Jimmy with an acoustic guitar. And he's in his hotel room and he's singing really quietly like... Have you ever been to Electric Ladyland? And the guitar's on one side of the tape and the vocals on the other. He recorded in stereo, so he did have a pretty good idea of how to record. And these songs are so beautifully put together and so quiet. It's the complete antithesis of what happened in the studio. So on the on the new box set, you get this beautiful journey from the original demo quietly in his hotel room with Jimmy kind of whispering to the outtakes which I've remixed and then you get the final final mix of the original song so you can trace the whole arc of how Jimmy created the music How did you choose what to put on here on the on the uh, bonus <laughs> disc? I mean, that must have been incredibly difficult. Well, it was there was a lot of stuff. I mean, imagine all those hours and hours of tape that we had to go through. Um, but we, you know, there's three of us who do the album. It's Janie Hendrix, who's Jimmy's half sister, who who runs Experience Hendrix, myself, and John McDermott, and the three of us do all the albums. I sometimes call ourselves the, the power trio. <laughs> Uh, because we just very carefully go through every single tape, listen to it, analyze it, and find out, okay, does this make the grade, or does that one? And, you know, sometimes you've got, I don't know, 10, 12, 13, maybe even 20 takes. You've got to go through it to see which ones are the ones that are going to survive. Well, it's a, a fantastic collection, and we, we should also mention that this box set comes with a live uh, album uh, recorded on September the 14th, 1968 at the Hollywood Bowl, which must have been an incredible Insane. performance. Oh, that was insanity. Yeah. And it's so cool because while we were working uh, at Capitol uh, Studios in Los Angeles mixing this, we got a phone call from someone who said, I found this tape. It was, you know, I mean, we get this all the time. If somebody finds a tape, it's in their basement or it's in a closet or it's in an attic. And somebody came up with this tape, and we glommed onto it right away. And I did a little bit of work on it to make it sound better. But essentially, it's a board tape from the Hollywood Bowl, and the kids are going out of their minds. There's a photograph, and if you see it in the in the booklet, these kids are jumping in the pool. There was an actual pool right in front of the stage in 1968, and these kids are going bananas and they're just jumping into the pool and Jimmy's going, no, no, don't get in the pool, you'll get electrocuted. (laughs) (laughs) Ladies and gentlemen, 
the group that you've been waiting for. We're very proud and privileged to present them at the Hollywood Bowl. Mitch Mitchell, Noel Redding, Jimi Hendrix, the Jimi Hendrix Experience. Well, it's a fantastic performance. And of course, there's also, you mentioned, we mentioned the Blu-ray, there's a documentary about the making of the album along with the surround sound, the, the remix and everything. So it's a beautiful package. I have to say, you know, there've been a lot of box sets released recently that, you know, we could mention. But uh, Eddie, I have to say, this is one of the, the best in terms of discovering the artist and maybe turning a lot of people on to Jimi Hendrix who may, I mean, everybody knows him. Anybody who's picked up a guitar knows him. But it's a fantastic journey of discovery, this particular re-release. Oh, thank you. That's, that's, that's very nice of you to say that. And, it, you know, when you open it up and you look at the booklet, the first thing you see is Jimmy's handwritten notes for the album. I mean, this was an album that he conceived of. This was his production, his direction, and it's the credit actually says produced and directed by Jimi Hendrix. That was absolutely true. His notes were meticulous, and the handwriting was so beautiful. And, you know, when you look at this, you think, this, this is the work of a genius. And then all the lyrics, you see uh, the, the notes from his book of lyrics all reproduced in there. And you, it's such a wonderful thing. So every time you turn a page, you're finding something new that you didn't really know about Jimi Hendrix. There are some amazing effects on, on the tracks, on the original, you know, and, and in the remix, they sound incredible. How did that come about? Like some of those effects, guitar effects, I mean, did what what was the collaborative process between yourself and Jimmy in producing the whole thing, you engineering it? How did that work in terms of putting those effects on and deciding what would go on in the track? Well, guitar tones and the guitar effects as he was playing them those were pretty standard, you know. In those days, it wasn't really that much that a guitar player could get hold of. You know, you'd have a distortion pedal, a wah-wah, maybe an Octavia, and fuzzes and stuff like that. Once we got into the control room, that's when the fun started. That's when we were able to sort of slow tapes down and do backwards guitars and then phasing and delays and all of that. There weren't that many things that we could do, but what we had at our disposal was, let's try anything and everything that we can to make this thing come alive. Uh, most of the, the special effects were things that we did as we were mixing it. You know, we would just experiment for three or four hours until we came up with something that suited the song. But it's not like you could just get a plug-in, you know, as you can do now. How, how no. did you do that? No, mate, there were no plug-ins in those <laughs> exactly. days. We, we, yeah, we just had to do it on the fly. And a lot, like I said, every day that we sat down at the console and put up a song to mix, it was experiment time. And, you know, just push the envelope. Just try anything, you know. Um, I, at, at times we would, 
I remember this very clearly, I would take some scotch tape and wrap it around the capstan motor of the tape machine, mm. and it would be an uneven kind of wrap. So when the tape went through it, it went, you know, all kinds of, anything nutty. I mean, the crazier it was, the better it was. Um, I just want to ask you about a couple of tracks that exemplify that. One of them is Burning of the Midnight Lamp, which has got some amazing effects on it. And that could have been, you know, a quite a quiet, gentle acoustic ballad. In its electric form, he turns it into something that is incredible. And I guess you would have been sitting there mixing that with him. Yeah, and the 5.1 was really a trick, trying to analyze what the hell happened in the beginning. Um but, it, you know, it, it, unless I'm sitting at the board now yeah. with the tape on and me going back and forth between the original, I can't remember what the hell I did. <laughs> <laughs> The other track I wanted to ask you about, of course, is Voodoo Child with Jack Cassidy and Steve Winwood uh, guesting ah, on, on that. Can you talk one about One of my favourite tracks. Yeah. Oh, dear, oh, dear. What a brilliant track that was. So the story about that is the, the proximity of the club that Jimmy used to hang out in every night was a club called The Scene, Steve Paul Scene. Now, if you know New York City, it's on a grid, right? So we are... Uh, on 8th Avenue and 44th Street, where the record plant was. And two blocks north, just about two minutes' walk, on 46th Street was this nightclub. So we're already there in the record plant. You know, we're in there 7 o'clock at night. You know, we've got everything set up. We've got the drums and the bass amps and the guitar amps and everything tested out, the headphones, the mics and everything. Where's Jimmy at 7, 8, 9? No, he's not here yet. 10, 11, by midnight, he strolls in. Because he's been over at the scene club. And the reason he's at the scene is because he loves to jam. And he also knew that some of his friends were coming in from England. This was at the time of the British sort of invasion of the U.S. And he loved Steve Winwood so much so that I believe he wanted to have Steve Winwood and his band. And not surprising, because Steve was a tour de force and he's a brilliant keyboard player guitar player bass player anything and, and his voice of course is magnificent but imagine jimmy is now jamming at the scene but what he's doing he's sussing out he's trying to figure out all right which musicians are going to come with me who are going to hang with me who are on my level and that would be jack cassidy and steve winwood so come midnight jimmy walks through the doors and dragging 15 people behind him and they plug in um maybe one rehearsal. I think maybe there was two rehearsals. And we're rolling tape anyway. And then, all right, let's take it for, for real. Bang, hit the record button. Jimmy's live on the floor of the studio. And it's literally one take straight through. No overdubs. Yeah, and you can hear that. You can hear the sound of the, the room on his vocal mic when it opens up. It's scary. I mean, it's just, it's one of the most hair-raising tracks on the album. It must bring back some incredible memories for you listening when you went back and listened 
back to all this over the months that took you to put it together? You know, that was such a wonderful thing. The first time I put up those 12-track one-inch, as we were transferring them, and I was listening and while they were being copied over, and I'm hearing Jimmy's voice, and he's, he's talking to the band, and then he says, hey, Eddie, can you blah, blah, blah? And I'm going, oh, jeez. <laughs> that's, that's so cool to hear Jimmy's voice talk to me, and then I'm talking to him, and then you hear him talking to Chaz in the beginning. It's just a lovely dialogue that would go on and loads of jokes. I mean, he would take the piss out of himself, very self-deprecating kind of humor, and took the piss out of me <laughs> and Mitch and Noel. Uh, he, he, was a, he was a very, very funny guy in the studio. Congratulations once again on what is a magnificent re-release. Oh, cheers, mate. That's very nice. You, you really done a, a brilliant job in this interview. I've really liked it. It's fantastic. Th- thanks very much. Great to talk to you. Bye. Cheers. been listening to the rhythms podcast with brian wise all the music you've heard during the interview is available on the electric ladyland box set i'm patrick marinan from rhythms magazine